Punk was actually a really progressive, like really great force that could help change the world. Punk rock legend Joe Keithley. Joey Keithley. Or in the music world and in radio, we knew him as Joey Shithead. Joey Shithead. Joey Shithead. The leader of DOA. 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 You know what? People laugh. I've been DOA for 40 years, and the whole time we fought against racism, greed, war, and sexism. There's a lot of reasons why I ran for politics. I believe in grassroots democracy, where people really have a say and an input into what is going on. The media said I couldn't win, but the people understood my message, and against all odds, I won. People said, a punk rocker in office? How could this happen? And you know, then people would make jokes, say, where's your mohawk? Where's your leather jacket? I said, you know what? I didn't bring any of those. But what I did bring was some fresh ideas. If you really believe in something, you've got to fight for it, and you cannot just talk about it. Joe and the band give a shit. Joe Keithley running for office. I mean, th this is one of the hardest things that you can do. I care about this community, and that's one of the reasons why I got into politics. This was the DOA school of actually trying to get stuff done and cultivate your audience to get a little smarter. As a punker, it was better than going to school and taking social studies. Way better, because it's real stuff that people are experiencing. I'm going to run again in 2022. You have to keep going and keep fighting for what's right. I think that's just the bottom line. When you think about it, it's like a David versus Goliath type story. Hey everybody, it's Joe from DOA, and this is Talking Schmidt, obviously. It's cool, like tonight is the night. Here we go again. Just give it the old cause turn, isn't it? All big dogs in. Schmitty. 96 times, Schmitty. Thanks, Schmitty. We on? Schmitty. Talking Schmidt. That's called going to the hospital, bitch. I can <laughs> shit my pants. Your Rolodex is fucking deep. It's right. about the one. The one. The one. Who is this guy who thinks he's tough shit? What's up? We're tastemakers. Come on, Schmitty. What the fuck? Let's hear it for Greg Smith. We got a first here on the podcast. Last week, I interviewed my next guest for Thrasher, and in doing so, I suggest we do another one for the podcast, and he obliged. Ladies and gentlemen, this is the lead singer of the legendary punk band DOA and the current city councilor of Burnaby, British Columbia, Canada. You may know him as Joey Shithead. This is Joey Keithley, everybody. Welcome back, Joey. Thank you for uh, doing this. Yeah, thanks for having me again. That's great. Would anything change? <laughs> uh, lots of stuff going on. Uh, pipelines, uh, COVID, uh, trees being cut down that shouldn't be cut down, you know, that kind of stuff. Uh, try, I, I just said we're in a super cold snap, so we've kind of been scrambling uh, to get uh, places for homeless people to stay. There's like an Arctic front coming down, well, from the Arctic, obviously. That's why they call it that. Uh -huh. And uh, so, I mean, usually this is a real... Uh, we don't get a lot of snow up here, just a lot of rain. Our area is a lot like the weather's like Seattle, very yeah. similar, right? Uh, but now we have this super cold snap coming down, and I guess it's going down to minus uh, 15, which in uh, in centigrade 
uh, for American listeners here would be like 15 or something like that. Damn. Like maybe 10, 10 degrees. Yeah. yeah. So it's getting really cold. And, and uh, yeah, other parts of BC, then it'd be like minus 36 Fahrenheit. So that'd be like minus 20 or something like that. Okay. Have you lived in that same zone your whole life? Yeah, I grew up in uh, the Vancouver area, right? So my hometown is Burnaby, which is like one suburb of Vancouver. Vancouver is the biggest city. Um, yeah, I mean, yeah, I have been here. It's an area of about two and a half million people. Yeah. Okay. What was the first uh, band you remember hearing as a little kid? Do you remember like getting your first <laughs> album or like like getting into music? Yeah. What, going to a record shop or what it was? Yeah, I think uh, the first one I heard my brother brought, my older brother brought home uh, uh, Rolling Stones album. I think it's called Flowers as Ruby Tuesday on it. Okay. And I was about like nine and my brother was about 16. And uh, I remember just playing that over and over again. And then uh, um, I wanted to get some rock records, uh, which my mother didn't like at all. So she she got me a copy of uh, a Chicago album. She figured that was rock, right? <laughs> <laughs> so she figures it been a bit more clean cut, and then uh, it wasn't long before, like we ended up with like a Alice Cooper albums where he's hanging himself and stuff like that it was uh, pretty outrageous at the time, right? Uh huh. Um, so, you, your brother kind of got you into music, then? Yeah, my sister actually more so. My older sister, she's like. 12 years older than me. So like, so it was like an art artist, like art student. And uh, I, it took me like 30 years to realize this, but she kept bringing home uh, uh, like protest music from the late sixties during the height of the Vietnam war, uh, civil rights protests and stuff like that. I mean, we're Canadians, but this was like front and center on mm. every TV, on every newspaper, every radio, what was going on in, in the United States. Right. So, um, and she brought home protests, folk music like Pierre Paul and Mary, Bob Dylan, uh, Pete Seeger, uh, the Weavers. And I got all the lyrics out of it, but it took me 30 years to realize that's actually kind of where my politics came out listening to that kind of music when I was a young kid. Right. So, yeah, and then my brother sense. kept, then my brother who was in the middle bought home the rock music. Right. So, okay. yeah. And then um, it was, it was pretty early when you like gravitated toward playing music like you got an instrument and you guys started playing around yeah i was about uh i was about 11 and my sister got married and i was the only kid at the wedding and they had a live band hired and i became fascinated with the drummer and the drummer was playing i thought this is so cool so i spent the whole night with the adults who were partying uh, drumming along on a chair trying to imitate this guy who was drumming and then um, it's this same usual story. I had a paper route and I saved my, from the paper route and bought a drum set and, uh, you know, it's been downhill ever since. <laughs> uh, the, the first like legit band was the schools. Is that right? Yeah, that was actually, we, no, we had a rock band. I mean, in high school, we had a band It was called, uh, we didn't have a name. With the three of us, I was a drummer, and uh, we were going to play like a noon hour thing. And we said, oh, this thing's going to go over like a lead balloon. So we became known as Lead Balloon. And we were abysmal beyond belief. And then we tried to start, <laughs> so terrible. Uh, and then we tried to start another band when we were like about 16, like 
Jerry Hanna and Brian Goble from the Subhumans, Dimwit from DOA, the Subhumans, Four Horsemen. Um, we all grew up within three walks of each other, and uh, we tried to start a band. It was like so so terrible, but so funny. I'd like to release like a, a single from it if I could find some tapes and just like you'd I'd have to offer free earplugs with it, like <laughs> <laughs> the worst crap you ever heard, right? But you know, we were like sixteen and we were trying. But the first uh, we started a rock band. It was called Stone Crazy. Uh, so this is about nineteen. 76 and we did uh, a few shows like uh you know kind of uh city fair type thing outdoor type things and uh high school stuff lunch hour and then uh, we got our first uh uh professional gig in a little logging town in british columbia called merit and believe me merit bc is really without any merit on its own <laughs> right it's like a, a total dump right so um and uh, we got fired after one night and we had this rock band called Stone Crazy. And we like, it was weird because we played Led Zeppelin, Steve Miller. Um, but we'd also throw in like Black Sabbath, which uh, uh, the people who came to the nightclub, you know, like nightclub patrons, they didn't know us. And uh, we played Paranoid and uh, uh, we had loggers threatening to beat us up after that. <laughs> I, I grabbed my app and I grabbed the marshal and turned everything to 10 and did the solo and... Uh, I, I guess I was about 18. The solo wasn't very good. Right? <laughs> and uh, they threatened to kill us, right? So we got our ass fired out of there, uh, sent home with 30 bucks. And uh, on the way back, we uh, we stopped um, and uh, said, you know, hey, uh, this rock and roll thing's not all it's cracked up to be, right? You know, and we were veterans of like three shows or something like that, right? You know, experience. And so Dimwood said, hey, why don't we start a punk rock band? Because we've been listening. We had the Ramones. It was 76, so we had the Ramones' first album. And we've been listening to that, you know, and like figuring out, like, Beat on the Brat and stuff like that. Mm -hmm. um, and uh, uh, and then Dimwood, uh, he said, um, we'll call the band Joey Shithead and the Marching Morons. And that was the kind of first incarnation type thing, right? And I became the singer somehow by default i have no idea right and uh um and we never kept that name but we morphed into the skulls which okay. is like different different than a lot of people know uh, and we played with them a, a few times too a good band the skulls from los angeles right so who were like re really in the early days as well right so right do you think maybe you got pushed into singing because you guys found a drummer that was better than you or do you think that you just wanted to start like singing and <sighs> writing lyrics or yeah, uh, we. I think the thing um, with the drumming, or doing what that was just because what we used to do when we had our high school band, um, we would switch instruments. We'd have one set where I drum, Dimwood would play bass, and Wimpy would play guitar, and Jerry Hanna uh, from Subhumans would sing. And then the next set, I would play guitar, Dimwood would drum, and Wimpy would play cool. bass. So we kind of it went back and forth. It turned out Dimwood turned out to be a great drummer, and I, I turned out to be. A, I think uh, uh, I looked up a mediocre drumming the other day, and uh, I gave us a picture of me. <laughs> <laughs> I googled that, and that's like you know. Yeah. Uh, anyway, so yeah, so then somehow I just got. Well, we had a good guitar player, like who was like really sharp, uh, Simon uh, Warner, who later on went and played uh, in a band in uh, England called the Pack. Now, uh, who put out a few kind of notable singles, uh, 
79, 80, 81, around there, right? So so he was a much better guitar player than me um, because playing guitar until I was about 18, 18 or 19. So I just said, okay, I'll be the singer, right? And, you know, and we it was a fun band. We had some some originals, about five or six originals, and we, uh, we learned a whole bunch of the first Damned album, uh, Ramon's songs, of course, and, uh, of course, uh, Iggy Pop, the the king of all, right? So, sure. you know. At that time, though, there's not a like huge amount of punk bands out there, right? There was none. Uh, like around, uh, we had heard about the Ramones, and the one thing, like, uh, you remember the magazine Kerrang? Oh. Yeah, it was like a big magazine from the eighties and nineties. Okay, it's been out of business for like probably twenty five years, right? Okay. But they had. We were in this grocery store in the in the suburbs where we lived, and there was a picture of Iggy Pop on the front. And the caption was Iggy Pop, man or worm, right? <laughs> so we got this magazine. So, oh, that's punk rock. And then we got the first Ramones album and went, oh, okay. So that's what that sounds like, right? And then we saw a little bit on TV about uh, the Sex Pistols and the Damned and Riots and, you know, that kind of, that kind of stuff. And then the Ramones came to town. I think this was like summer, um, mid 77 or something like that. They were touring the first album and, the, and uh, they played a ballroom that held a thousand people, 1200 people. And I think they'd sold two tickets. So uh, <laughs> they yes. hadn't exactly caught on. Let's say a 1200 person <laughs> place. Well, boys, you've sold two. At least it's not one. Right. Uh, said the Danny Fields, the manager. Right. So, uh. and, and uh, so they announced on the radio, come on down, see Ramones for free. Cause the bar owner would at least want to get some, sales from uh, drinks right sure. so so about 100 of us with one summer night went to see the ramones the loot from seattle opened up uh the ramones uh, played the first album like start to finish and that was kind of the whole show they played about half an hour it was over right and we all and about the 100 of us which is the start of the vancouver scene all walked out of there and went like whoa okay so that's what punk rock is because we'd heard about it but we'd never seen it so then we went ah okay i got it it's fucking great, right? So and fun. Is the loot was that was Duff in that band? No, the Duff was the dr original drummer for uh, the Fastbacks, and I, I could be I could be mixed up. I think it was in the in the Farts as well. Who was uh, a great great yeah great I think band right. from yeah really. Uh, and then later on, I haven't heard it yet, but it, uh, Duff just sent me like a new album they were working on from that time. He had a band called The Living. So uh, there's going to be a release coming up sometime within the next, I don't know, four, six, eight months or whatever, right? With that, with the Duff on that. So that was he's still in Seattle before he moved to LA and uh, you know mm -hmm. became really famous, right? So right. So how long does the schools last before it turns into DOA? Uh, we started, I think, July '77, and then the then we in the winter time we drove a motorhome, like a one-way drive-through from Vancouver to Toronto. In November, and uh, if you ever driven through Canada in the winter time, it is hellacious, right? So uh, we got out and we played around in Toronto for a while. And we played with bands out there like the the Ugly and the Vile Tones, like the early Toronto scene, like in winter of '77 going '78. And the plan was we were supposed to move to London to make our big break there, right, London, England. So, mm. um, and um, uh, Wimpy, uh, bass player, and uh, Simon Warner, guitar player, moved. And for some reason, or me and Dimwit, the drummer, decided not to move and uh, <clears throat> moved back to Vancouver. 
And, uh, you know, I, and I apologize to this day, but we left those guys like high and dry. And Wimpy hawked his precision base. They were like freezing in some cold water squat, right? And, uh, you know, they both survived, right? You know, and then, uh, so I went back to Vancouver you know, and in February of, uh, of uh, 1978. I put an ad in the local paper uh, looking uh, to start punk rock band, looking for bass player and drummer. Um, I think the ad said, no wimps apply. No wimps need apply, right? That <laughs> was a popular expression, you know, 40 years ago, right? So, and uh, yeah, so, yeah, that, so the about February 78, we got going, right? So, kind of indirectly, because uh, the first guys, one of the first guys to show up was Rampage, right? The bass player, obviously, right? Uh-huh. Right? And, um, but he showed up as a, as a left-handed drummer. Right. And, uh, you know, it was cool because you do this like cross hand, open handed, you know, anybody's a drummer. And they're like, when you watch like left handed drummers, they play open hand either way. Whereas uh-huh. like a right handed guy would play the hat, like yeah. crossover like that. And, um, and he, you know, he was okay, like pretty decent, like uh, accomplished. Then we, then uh, Chuck called me, like Dimwood's little brother, Chuck Biscuits. And uh, so I'd like to try out. And uh, he was great. He's only about, 15 and a half years old and he was like phenomenal white dimwood had been in toronto with me and uh, the skulls and chuck had been practicing like crazy right so i went wow okay <laughs> this kid's great right and uh uh then what what happened was then i thought hmm, randy uh, is a good drummer but i bet i can teach him to play bass so i got randy a bass and i said okay um so I'm going to show you how bit, how to play bass, right? So, you know, because at this point, I'd probably been playing guitar like, you know, three and a half years. So, obviously, I was the ultimate pro at that point after three years' experience, right? <laughs> oh, yeah. I knew everything. You had paranoid yeah, I mean, on me, me, <laughs> Yeah, yeah. Me and uh, Tony Iommi, right? You know, we were close. <laughs> <laughs> um, anyway, so and Randy was really adept. And like I say, I was a drummer. Randy was a drummer. And Chuck was a drummer supreme. So, we had D-Way start with three drummers. So let's just say that's one. I think that's one of the keys about DUA. We always had a, a really sharp sense of rhythm and how, where to how to chug it out. And I think that was just that kind of approach because we're all drummers. Mm. Did you guys ever? Did, did you ever do the switch around with DOA where like different guys would play drums on a different song? No, um, no, we didn't do that because uh, Randy and I were just uh, you know not even one tenth the drummer that Chuck was. He right, was so phenomenal I, right out of the gates, huh? Right out of the gate. Yeah, he used to sit up uh, when we practiced in Dimwood's garage in our hometown of Burnaby. Wimpy, Dimwood, and I would be practicing in the garage making this horrendous sound when we were like 15, 16. And uh, his dad would be coming out banging on the garage door like, bam, bam, bam. We have stopped that goddamn noise all night long. Tweet, 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 tweet. Can't you learn another goddamn song? And then you look at his son, Dimwood, go like, why don't you get a trade like I did or, or join the Navy like I did. But anyways, I'm digressing yeah. here. Right. But Chuck, there was a bunk and Chuck would play along with us on a, on bongo drums. And that's right. For when he was about like 12 and that's where he got his first like uh, bit of drumming. So he's like following along on bongos. And then we hadn't seen him for like six, eight months. And I'm like, Whoa, this guy's a great drummer. Right. And he, he got better as he went. Right. So amazing. Yeah. Yeah. Funny story, right? I mean, but everybody grew up, I mean, because most of the people I know who play music, yeah, we all learned to play guitar when we were like 12 or 14, right? You know, I didn't. I waited until I was 18, but I was a drummer before that. Mm-hmm. I wanted to um, get into a few songs, um, if we could. Sure. 
maybe like yep. a f- pick a few songs and then each song we could have like a little story about it or what the the lyrics mean yeah. or just some background yeah. to it. Um, I think it'd be a unique way to like look at the music and then I can drop the song after we talk about it. Sure. Um, you know, like yeah, maybe we uh, talk about the enemy and then you tell the story of like where you yeah. were at that time and how it, the influencer. Yeah. Okay. So the enemy, I just happened to have this here cause I'm sitting in my office came out on that album. Something very changed. Oh, right. But I did find a, a different, an earlier version of it. This is like a double album of early outtakes called 1978. Nice. And it's the enemy with uh, the chorus is the same, but the second and third verse are quite different. And they're talking about like Nazis, uh, Nazis kick them in the head because they are no fun. You got to know who your enemy is. So, I mean, that was a line that Chuck came up with and uh, we worked together and finished the song and, uh, um, it's kind of like um, it's kind of like the all-purpose song. Like it's kind of the go-to DOA song. If you ask me, all-encompassing. Everybody knows that one. It's good. Like okay, you got to know who your enemy is. It's just really clear. If you don't know who your enemy is, you'll just get conned, right? So. A story behind naming the band? Yeah, there's a yeah, it's a really funny story. So the three of us, okay, so Randy, Chuck, and I. This is our band. There was just like kind of a art space, like in a warehouse downtown Vancouver on the waterfront, like really, of course, the grittiest, dirtiest, and cheapest part of the, the of the entire city. That's where the artists were, right? So, and uh, so they would invite bands to play, and people come and hang out and have a few beers and different bands would practice there it was like free we'd just show up with some gear and play and uh this guy comes in and uh uh he's got like a girl on each arm and a giant bottle of whiskey and he's like standing there listening to us play and uh, we finish playing and we go hey how you doing and he goes you know guys you're really good i got a plan you guys be the band i'll be the singer we'll call doa and we'll make a million dollars and uh, with the three of us, Chuck, Randy, and I looked at each other and we're like, we had a little conference off on the side, like, 
<laughs> and about 30 seconds went, okay, let's do it, right? That, that, that was the start of how DOA got the name. And uh, Harry uh, Michelson, whose nickname was Harry Homo, so that was pretty funny. Um, Harry was a great guy, but turned out was uh, not a great singer. Oh. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so we had our, our first show. Uh, we opened up for a band. Uh, there's an old place called the Japanese Hall, on the, also on the waterfront in Vancouver. And um, I can't remember what band was playing. Oh, the Generators, right? And they had kind of rented the hall. They had the gear. They played a few shows. And we knew like three and a half songs, um, you know, because the, the fourth one we had finished. So that's why I said it was like three and a half songs. So I think it was about February 20th, 1978, maybe February 25th. And um, we asked these guys if we could get up and play a song using their gear. You know, I had you know, I had my guitar and Randy has bass. I said, sure, yeah, go ahead. Then we're finished the set in a little bit and you guys go play. So we played the three and a half songs and we were a lot more crazy and out of control than those guys were. And then when we finished the three and a half songs, we started playing them over again, right? And of course, these guys are going like, who the fuck are these guys? And they came up and we got into this pushing shoving match on the stage and there's more of them. So they end up pushing us off. And I jumped off into the audience holding my guitar and that was the end of the first DOA show, right? So they, <laughs> they booted us off the stage. <laughs> Damn. Yeah, I'm based here in San Francisco and uh, I believe you guys played one of your earlier shows here, right? Like at the Mabuhay? Yeah. Yeah, the Mabuhay Gardens, because uh, we, what happened, we ended up, so after only about three months, uh, I, I arranged it for us to record a, a single, right? Like a, actually a four song, seven inch single. So like Disco Sucks uh, mm -hmm. was the name of the EP and Nazi Train Camp Woke Up Screaming and uh, Royal Police. So we got these back, 500 of these, and then. I started uh, going through like rock magazines uh, to see where like radio stations were and magazines. And I just take a regular envelope and I don't know how many of these singles arrived in one piece. They weren't padded. I put in an envelope. I wrote a little note. Hi, we're DOA. We're a punk rock band from Canada. Can we come and play in your town? Or can you play this on your radio station? So, and we mailed probably like, hundred of those out like to London, to New York, Toronto, uh, San Francisco, LA, Seattle, whatever. And uh, so then we got this letter back and it said, Oh, uh, disco sucks is number one on uh, KUSF. What was San Francisco KUSF. radio station? Uh -huh. Yeah. Yeah. It was number one or number two. And of course the university radio station doesn't mean you're selling any records at all. Right. But, uh, but we're going whoa, we're number one on this radio station, right? <laughs> like, whoa! <laughs> like, like, we're pretty excited, right? And uh, yeah. so I said, well, we heard about the Mabuhay Gardens, right? <laughs> so I found the number, and I called up Dirk Dirksen, and uh, who was the uh, impresario, ran uh, Mabuhay Gardens, uh, the, le the man, the legend, and uh, said, sure, uh, you guys can come down, play a weekend, uh, we'll give you, like, no guarantee, and I think we got 10% of the door or something like that, right? And uh, so we had two shows. They had Friday night. Um, we opened for um, Ray Campy and the Rockabilly Rebels. So it was a bit, it wasn't really a punk rock crowd, but there was a little bit of that crossover between Rockabilly and punk rock, like in the early days. I mean, there still is to this day, right? So I'll make this a really short story, but I, I had met Will Shatter just walking down the street. Like Brad, our guitar player at the time, uh, hitchhiked with his guitar, 
Randy and Chuck took a bus and I took a train uh, from Vancouver down to San Francisco. That's how we arrived. So I got there first and we didn't have any gear. So I met Dirk Dirksen. He says, oh, yeah, I'm I'm Joe from DOA. We're playing tonight. He went, great. Where's your equipment? And I said, oh, um, we didn't bring any. And Dirk (laughs) went, let me ask you something. I said, yeah. He said, are all you Canadians just stupid? <laughs> and I kind of went, I don't know. <laughs> so, but I'd happened to met Wolf's Chatter, and we'd been spent about a day off and on wandering around the Fisherman's Worth thing, uh, drinking as many beers as we could. And, you know, he just, because he just saw me, oh, look, it's a punk. And I went, oh, it's a punk. I better say hello type thing, right? That's how you make friends. And uh, mm. uh, so we became fast friends. And then, um, he arranged for um, their gear because it wasn't Flipper at the time, but it was Negative Trend. And they had uh, a little practice space around the corner, not too far from the map in North Beach there. And uh, we got a taxi and loaded as much gear as we could and took it up to the club, right? Mm-hmm. So we had gear to play. So that was great. Will saved us, right? And uh, so what happened about halfway through our set, the Friday night, our first showdown there, um, where people were like, uh, they weren't really reacting really well. They were just like, okay, who are these idiots, right? You know, we're from Canada, we're New England, you know, whatever, whatever the stage number manager was. Number one on KUSF. Don't forget that, folks. <laughs> we're number one. Number one. <laughs> Fuck you. Fuck, get off the stage. <laughs> you know what I mean? So at this point, I've been drinking all day, so I decided to take a piss off the stage. And this became, and it went a long way, shall we say, right? Um and it became a thing of legend in the, the in the Bay Area for around that time anyways, right? And I guess uh, Biafra had heard about this and uh, a few other people in the area. Like, oh, yeah, these crazy guys from Canada. One guy pissed off the stage, right? Type thing, right? And so the next night, then we opened up for the Avengers. And, of course, oh. I was like, you know, yeah, whoa, whoa, what a great, yeah, one of my favorite <laughs> bands of all time. The yeah. place was packed. And everybody got it. And then, uh, and then the next night, the Dead Kennedys were playing on a Sunday night. So the, the DKs invited us down, and we hung out there. And we made a really good impression in SF uh, early on. Maybe maybe not by normal means. You know, pissing off the stage, hey, kids, don't try this at home, or maybe even a nightclub either. <laughs> That's amazing. So did you meet Jello on that initial trip or not till later? Uh, no, that trip. Too, because then the Sunday night at the DK show, oh, this story goes on. I'm, I'll keep it short. I guess I smuggled beer in from the grocery store across the street, right? Because I didn't have the money to pay for beer at the Mab. And uh, one bouncer came up and said, hey, you can't drink that in here. I kind of went, oh, yeah. And I shook it up and I sprayed it into his face, right? And the next thing I know, I had four guys drag me out to the front door and threw me on the sidewalk, right? And I was like, <laughs> and DKs were they were on stage, right? Yeah, that's it. And Dirksen came out and went, shut up, you're 86. You'll never come in this club again, you stupid idiot, right? And I went, oh, a Biafra said, stop the show. We're not playing until you let that Joey shithead back in here, right? So Dirksen, like, kind of crossed his arms went, like, and scowled at me. And I knew at that point I had to behave. So then we became friends with Biafra, uh, fast friends after that. Wow, that's pretty fucking cool. That was a crazy weekend. Fuck, that sounds like it. Dead Kennedys, yeah. Avengers, your first... Was, that was your first time to SF, I, I'm imagining, yeah? Uh, first time we ever played outside of Vancouver. 
And so then later you uh, recorded the That's Progress with with Jello on vocals. Yeah, yeah, that's a great song. And uh, they needed a song for the soundtrack for the movie Terminal City Ricochet, which is a movie that's hard to find. But I think there's a DVD version that you can get on order from Alternative Tentacles. Right. Okay. So they probably still have them in stock. But it was a movie made in Canada about kind of futuristic um uh, not a populistic world, but just a screwed up uh, look at the future, right? And uh, so it was this one horrible town uh, that was run by a dictator. Uh, Ross the Boss Glimmer was his name. So they needed a, a song for the intro of the soundtrack, uh, the movie. So this would be opera said, well, I'm coming up here to act in this movie. Let's record, record the song. So we sat down at Propal Studios with Cecil English. Um, who produced all sorts of stuff like SNFU, No Means No, DOA. And we did the song that came out really well. And then Biapra got a part, had a part of the movie. So Biapra was uh, in the movie, he's the head of the secret police, right? Oh, so I got to check and, it out. Um, and, I, and I got a, yeah, it's pretty funny. Like, I wouldn't call it like a great movie, but for the people that are in it, it's like, it's interesting. The soundtrack's really good. And I play like uh, uh, a cop in the in the movie where, and, and, and you talk, not talking even normal, but a merciless one. They had no regard for the public at all. And so the song came out of making uh, a soundtrack? Yeah, for that. And then Biafra's coming back um, to work on something else. I can't remember what. And uh, so he said, why don't we try to do a whole album together? So then that's when we came up, Lost Scream and the Missing Davis. Be part of my grief. You're a victim, time to leave. No matter if your family's been to 30 years. We're triple in the rent. Time's up to share a gift. Back to you with a creep out on the street. A good pine and coking palace. That temple symbolized. Your neighborhood is sore and slowly died. It's gentrified. Oh, yeah. That's progress. Now the progress makes it feel good. It's fine. Runway life, with just no widows You've got a victim career at age 15 You don't want to buy cold IDs Or trapped on bakeries Every cold sleep in when you're sick and what you eat For every spy in government That's just a private eye Round up third eye, you need to eat my file To sell a file Oh yeah, a progress Now the progress in the future is mine A progress, a progress you can't be here on fire, you with no hope, that makes you do. But I'll see a whole life for back to prank, you can do it and try. Your back yard. He's not 
the cat back to the car. Just got your part. Oh no! Not again! All the drivers make me feel ill inside. Progress! Progress! Like I'll have to move the yellow bag. So good. Yeah. Yeah, it's great right? great record. What goes through your mind when the mayor declares DOA day? <laughs> like is this like yeah, are yeah. you kidding me or did you see it coming or are you just like blown away like Yeah, I I didn't uh that we got a new mayor in Vancouver. Uh, I think this is a one in fact as a matter of fact, I was take a look. The plaque is uh see now I'll turn the there it is. Right there. Oh, nice. Uh, proclamation. Proclamation. Celebration of the 25th anniversary of DOA, uh, signed by Mayor Larry Campbell. That's uh, amazing. Was, yeah. And it was pretty funny, but Vancouver had this reputation, and I think that was in 01 or 02, okay, that Vancouver's reputation as no fun city. Like, you couldn't do anything. Hmm. And uh, the, the mayor had just got elected new mayor and got rid of the old guy. And... Um, some of the counselors were like uh, pretty hip. Uh, one was a friend of mine, Jim Green, and we had done activist stuff to Gary to help uh, people from getting kicked out of their houses and stuff like that, right? So, uh, so he initiated this uh, DOA day and uh, came down at a club. I was doing a show, pulled out the scroll, and whereas uh, the punk band DOA celebrates the 25th anniversary this month, Whereas DOA was formed in the midst of the punk rock revolution. Anyways, right. There's about 12 of these whereas things. Right. So, hmm. and uh, yeah, I didn't see that coming at all, but it was really cool. That is really cool. Okay. We don't usually on the show here, talk politics, but let's talk a little politics. Cause I'm, I'm intrigued sure. with your opinions on some of this stuff. Yeah. Something that's, Close to me is the homelessness. SF has a real bad problem right now. I know it's one of your priorities too. And uh, creating more affordable housing or whatever. What what needs to be done to fix this problem? It's a huge problem. I think uh, everywhere probably, but SF has a huge one. I don't know what Vancouver is yeah. like, but uh, yeah. No, I mean, all the way up and down the coast, like San Diego is has a huge homeless problem. Seattle Vancouver, my hometown, like the whole the whole whole area, right? I mean, really, the the thing is that because it's we live on the, the nicest areas of the continent for Canada. This is the mildest area, you know. Like we haven't had snow one day of snow yet this year, right? So, or you know, and uh, so a lot of people gravitate to her towards here because you can, you can live outside, right? You know, it's not great, but you can, right? Um, so the thing is that because housing prices have gone so out of control. I mean, the San Francisco Bay Area with the dot-com boom, uh, Silicon Valley, uh, and the values have gone up. Where So it's not just that homeless people can't get homes. It's that middle-class people can't afford homes, right? So And so all the, everybody's getting driven out of the city. So the only new places that are being built in the city are really just being bought off by people, offshore people. You know, and putting my in buying up apartments, uh, luxury places, uh, you know, set places we used to hang out in Vancouver. Now, you know, the house was like, you know, a hundred, hundred ten thousand dollars. That house is two million dollars now. Like, you know, that that one I I can think of one in a kind of a hip area of Vancouver, like when I was twenty. 
that I could have bought for 90 grand. It's over, worth over 2 million now, right? You yes, know? So, SF's similar. Yeah. So, so having said that, the, the things to do is to create a, like a, a whole bunch of forms of housing, whether it's like laneway or row housing, or even like a temporary, like uh, some of the stuff we're doing here in Vancouver and in Burnaby is um, modular housing. And that's really kind of where um, for, for home, most people and we just opened one here 50 rooms a modular housing unit that is for uh battered women right so stuff like that people that that need help like really right. need help right so mm -hmm. and uh it's a funny thing uh in a sense that some people go like oh god now why should we build houses for these people uh, you know they're homeless they don't pay taxes i pay taxes all my life you know what they're human beings Right. So we got to look after them. Right. So, yeah. but the other thing too is the, the, the big, the big thing is kind of what you hear this all the time is the missing middle. So you got to find ways to address that. So some of the stuff we're doing up here, we found six large properties within the city of Burnaby and we're not selling them or giving them, but we're leasing them for 99 years to housing societies. So then you have below market rental places uh, that will go to, to the homeless, to seniors, um, to disabled people, to indigenous people, uh, that, and they'll be the first in line to move into these places. You know, and it, we can't build fast enough. That's what the problem is, right? Because there's more people moving in. I just saw a population projection two days ago here. We're two and a half million people in the area. It's going to 30 years from now or 20 years from now, it's going to be three and a half million. Right. So that's an, that's an awful lot of housing to build. You know, hey, comes the same old thing. If you got more money than other people, then you got to put in your fair share and help our people out. Yeah. One of the obvious ones is for the billionaires to just. <laughs> I mean, come there's on. a lot of things we could do with the billionaires uh, yeah. better than they're doing right now. But we don't <laughs> we can cover that in detail if you want. <laughs> <laughs> well, I was curious, did you always vote? Have you always believed in this like growing up or or did that change at some point where you got more into like this whole deal? Well, I mean, yeah, it's a funny thing because the DOA has a bit of like a kind of a bit of an anarchist reputation type thing, right? Mm -hmm. in, in a sense, you know, with the the style of songs, the art uh, stances we've taken. But the thing is that I, I voted in every single election I could since I was like 18 years old. Mm -hmm. um, and it's kind of like, even though sometimes it won't change a lot, if you don't vote, uh, in, in a sense, you almost lose your right to bitch about who, who's in there, right? You know, That's even right. though, you know, Nike, you live, you might live in it. And I'm not saying you got to vote right, left, middle or whatever, but if you don't get out there and exercise your democratic right, and I, here's the key thing, you got to think, um, one of my heroes is Joe Hill, who wrote the, all the union songs back in the, the, the 10s, 20s and 30s of the previous century. Uh, and he was the songsmith for the international workers of the world, right? And I, uh, uh, during his time when they were doing this, like said, setting up unions and helping people and getting like, like an eight hour day and some sort of provision where people weren't dying in these heavy industrial jobs or less people dying, that uh, uh, people went to jail for the right to vote. People got killed uh, for the right to vote. So if you don't honor that, you're missing the point. And I'm not a big backer of these big party systems. Like they say, you know, if I was in the States, yeah, I'd be voting for the Democrats, but there's a lot wrong, wrong, lots wrong with the establishment of the Democratic Party, no doubt about it. Right? It's a it's a hierarchy, and they control it. But if you look at like the vote 
drive, voter registration drive in Georgia, to me, that's like, okay, that's a really positive thing because you've got disenfranchised people that actually got to change the scenario at least a little bit. So you only get incremental changes, but incremental change is better than no change. Yeah. And like a lot of people think like, oh, we're just voting for, let's say, the president. But no, there's all these local things that are, you know, like yep. last time I talked to you, didn't you say you won by like 290 votes or something? Yeah, I got in by 270. I got 17,000 votes and uh, I got eighth place out of eight council spots. And my nearest opponent was only 270 votes behind me. So votes uh, do matter, you know, like that. It, 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 was, it was close. It's like, uh, have you ever, if any of the fans of uh, Futurama out there, uh, they're, they're having the, the, the election and it's Richard Nixon being kept alive. He's running for president of the world uh-huh. and whoever the other opponent is. And all the humans uh, vote for the uh, Nixon's opponent, except for Leela and Fry. Uh-huh. But then the robot vote comes in and they all vote for Nixon. So Nixon wins by one vote. So <laughs> you got to look up that episode. It's pretty funny, right? So, I will. I definitely yeah. will. Um, do you know anything about this guy, uh, Beto O'Rourke? I, I do. I do. Yeah, Beto O'Rourke. Uh, that is a good segue because uh, the, the documentary, Something Very Changed. Uh-huh. Um, we, have, we did an interview with Beto. Uh, he's oh, going to be in the film. Yeah. So um, Scott Crawford, the filmmaker, uh, knew somebody in D.C. and connected with Beto. And uh, when I heard was Beto was running uh, um, for president this, you know, a year and a half ago or whatever, or running, and running for Senate, I went like, well, you know, a guy who was in kind of a punk rock band, rides a skateboard, been arrested a couple of times. To me, that's qualification to become president, right? <laughs> you, you know what I mean? Like, so, because yeah. he approaches things kind of kind of differently, right? Uh, and compare him to a guy like Ted Cruz. <laughs> Ted Cruz is like one of the worst human beings on the face of the earth, right? <laughs> yeah. And Beto O'Rourke almost beat him in a, in a super red state. So I, I, I hope that Beto runs again, wins the Senate seat in Texas uh, next time, next opportunity he has. But he's a good guy. And it's like really, you need some different type of people. And it's like, as I say, though, you got to get outside the establishment when you're looking for politicians. So, I mean, I kind of tell people when I was running, and I will again when I run for re-election next year, uh, that, you know, I'm not your typical politician. And now I know that's a typical line, and everybody tries to use that one. That's the one that, mm. but you know what? Yeah, I played in a punk rock band for over 40 years, and I still play in a punk rock band. And the whole thing we said about racism, about women's rights, about the environment, that type of approach I took in DOA, I'm still taking that type of approach in like politics, right? So mm-hmm. why should that change just because I got elected? Right. Yeah, that's true. The thing that I see on the flip side of that is people say, well, we tried to go that route with Trump and it didn't work. <laughs> like, you know, let's, <laughs> let's, ha- let's get the guy that's not a politician. <laughs> well, uh, yeah, that took it. I, I agree. That took it to the extreme, right? So <laughs> Uh, well, not every theory is perfect, shall we yeah. say. There's an okay. except, exception to every rule. Well, let's talk yeah. about the documentary. Sure. What is it going to encapsulate? Is it like your whole story? Is it mostly just the political part or what's going on with it? It's got everything. In it. it starts so really early days of DOA. And we've been, uh, God, I think I went through uh, just COVID started. 
I had time to do this. I had about 250 VHS tapes on various DOA things that like old school stuff that's just sitting there. So we're transferring them right now so we can get some like footage from like the early days. Yeah. Uh, And use that in the film. So there's that stuff. And then it will go through the middle period. I mean, DOA has been around like a hell of a long time. Like, and then it will encapsulate um, along the way the activism that DOA was involved in or and or I was involved in. Uh-huh. And we do have film of that film of that. You know, they were captured like, you know, I, I, DOA was a newsworthy band in Canada. And so there's like, uh, you know, there was quite a few news clips of us doing stuff like for environmental causes, um, for education, uh, uh, for, uh, you know, stuff against racism, right? So, um, so we encapsulate that and then it will go into like where I got elected and then a big part, chunk of the film towards the end. I mean, I don't know how Scott's going to cut it together exactly, but he's the director. I'm just the, I'm just the band guy, right? So then uh, we will go on my re-election campaign, which is next year. So he's going to follow that in late 2022. And then the film will be out in 2023. Oh, nice. And this is the guy, he worked with Minor Threat, right? He Did he do Salad Days? Or? Yep. Yeah, he's the director of Salad Days. And I asked Ian uh, if he was square and Ian, Ian gave the thumbs up. So that was a good, good sign. Uh, <laughs> yeah, yeah I, that's what I thought too, right? Uh, if Ian has said something bad, I'm going to like, okay, you know, but yeah, no. Um, so that, that, that was really good. And, uh, I think uh, the end of the film, if I don't get reelected, I still got my guitar. If yeah. I get reelected, I'm, I'm reelected and I still got my guitar. I'm still playing. Okay. I know that like some bands have a clause, like if you get into a band, you can't, or like an actor is a better one acting. You can't skateboard during when we're filming because you might get hurt. In, in po- politics, is there a clause like you can't tour in a <laughs> punk band? I, I think they'd probably say, please do. Maybe you will get hurt and not come back. <laughs> oh, <laughs> no, um, no, no, nothing like that. The clothes I wear have changed. I do wear a suit frequently, mm-hmm. you know, at City Hall, uh, which I've never worn a suit in my entire life, and I've never worn hard, worn hard soles shoes. And um, I usually never comb my hair. Before I go to City Hall, I have, I have a comb in my van. I have an old, old Dodge van. I have, okay. And, you know. When I get there, people go, oh, hi, Counselor Keithley. The first few times that happened, I was like, huh? <laughs> <laughs> Did you have to do a YouTube tutorial on how to do the tie? Oh, my God. I, I was one campaign <laughs> previous. Uh, we had this debate and it was like it was a pitch battle. I was trying to get this nomination. And I failed by like four votes or something like that. Yeah, and uh, uh, I was just getting my suit on. And then I said, said to uh uh, Ryan, who's my niece's uh, husband, I'm going, Ryan, I, I don't know how to tie this tie. And he's going like, hmm, I'm not sure either, right? You know, Ryan's probably about 25 at the time. Mm-hmm. So he's sitting there, we're over at his house, and he's going like, okay, uh, yeah, okay, I think that looks okay. All right, good enough. <laughs> but no, I, I'm good with it now. Nice. Okay. <laughs> yeah, um, it took some thinking. I was actually going to ask you, I, yeah. I didn't ask you this. Because when you guys first started, and probably for a big portion of that, this is pre-internet that we're talking about. So how was touring without like knowing really where to go? Were you just sending like uh, the college radios? Like how would you line up a tour? Yeah, that's interesting. I say, well, uh, I phoned the Mabuhay. That was our first trip. 
Uh, and then the next tour we had this thing was a big uh, Rock Against Racism uh, show in Chicago at Lincoln Park, right by the Bears Stadium on the on the lake there. Mm. And Patty Smith Band was playing, and people from all over the Midwest, about five thousand people showed up. So this is like uh, June. 79 or something like that right and um an anarchist friend of mine uh a guy who managed the subhumans up here actually got us on the bill and uh so we, we drove out there so we had i phoned down i arranged a gig in seattle hey can we come down and play here sure we'll give you 50 bucks or whatever right mm-hmm. uh, gig and us up and then uh and then i called down to texas the first time i went to texas and i arranged three shows uh, one at Raul's in uh, Austin, which is a famous place there, and um, had one in Houston, Dallas. But then I forgot to call back and reconfirm. So at that point, only the Austin show, the other two places canceled. They went, out, who is this jerk type thing, right? So <laughs> <laughs> so we ended up in Chicago with this Rock Against Racism, and we'd done like three shows. We were starving. Like we had no gas money. We had no food. And this one guy let us stay at this place. We, we ate all this food, drank every bit of alcohol that was in the place. And finally, he went like, you guys have another show? And went, oh, yeah, yeah, sure. I think we got one in New York, right? So we phoned up uh, the, the gypsies, and there was a place called Bleecker Street, that number 10 Bleecker. And it was a half a block from uh, CBGB's, like on the side street there. And uh, we got there a week before the show and lived in this warehouse. And... Um, I think we had 20 bucks to our name. So what did we do with the 20 bucks the first night? We went, went out and spent all on beer. And then we, we starved for the next six days waiting for the show. And uh, for our first show in New York. And then I, then I phoned up. We found three shows in Ottawa and one in Toronto. And then we, from Toronto to Vancouver, it's 3,000 miles. We just drove straight back. Damn. And, uh, yeah. So I think we did the eight, nine shows. Took like about a month. That was our first North American tour. But later on, it kind of got a bit of a network. And this was like, um, we ended up doing a lot of shows with Black Flag. Uh, so they became good friends with those guys. And uh, so it was like Chuck Dukowski, the bass player, who did most of the arranging. He was sort of like, okay, he, he was flying out the tours at mm-hmm. the time. And so I would change numbers with uh, with Chuck. And you'll be like, uh, don't go to that show in Sacramento. That guy will never pay a dime, right? You know, uh, right. Uh, can't tell productions. And, and we went, yeah, I can't tell what you're going to get paid if you're going to get paid anything. Anyway, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, some old timers out that way. We're out in the uh, valley. Remember that. And uh, then we would just go like, uh, yeah, this guy's good. That guy's a rip pop, uh, you know, and we just like trade the, the contacts back and forth because those guys were touring get crazy just like DOA was. They just hop in a van, just go. So reputations, good and bad, kind of just went through the phone lines. Like, hey, what's up in Colorado? Don't go to Denver, go to Boulder, or like whatever. Yeah, yeah. And just like, yeah, you'll get ripped off. Uh huh. This guy, you know. Uh, Interesting. One of the guys, what the hell? We're, we're at the old Vex in LA, and uh, was Nikki Six came up and uh, said, oh, yeah, you guys are great. And this was before Motley Crue got famous right i can get a show out in san berdue right and went oh okay cool we have a night off and he went okay i'll see you tomorrow night <laughs> or somebody's gonna promote a show in one day or something like that right and as soon as he left somebody else went like don't do that show that guy just fucking ripped me off right yeah <laughs> when you got a vibe you got a vibe about people right and you had to follow your instincts it was sure. like a frontier 
uh, a frontiersman or something like that. You know, like you just keep driving. And you didn't know if you were going to encounter a show, police, uh, you know, whatever. Right. You know. Mm. Yeah. I mean, uh, I've told the story before, but my first time to Vancouver, we graduated from high school. We got my Volkswagen bus, me and my friend, and we just drove up there because we knew there yep. were skate parks up there. We had no idea where we were staying. We didn't know where anything right. was, nothing. And we just pulled into the town. We went to a, a park. We met this dude and he's like, hey, my parents are gone for a week. You can stay with us. And just <laughs> shit like that happens on the road. Yeah, it you does. Know? So It does. Like I say, like um, my first time in San Francisco, I just uh, saw Will Shatter walking down the street and I went like, oh, hey. He went, hey. And he <laughs> saved, saved us, right? That was just a, one of those things. Right. Or, or, or our old manager, uh, Ken, he used to go like me or Randy would be driving and we'd go, okay, where's the show? He said, no, I, I don't have the address. And we go, well, we're supposed to be in the show. What's the address? And, and he would go, just drive into town and look for punks. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> so, you know, and that's what you did, right? It was yeah. like, play it by ear. Yeah. Yeah. What do you think about p- punk rock in t- 2020? Like the, the, the bands? Um, I think it's, it's fine. I think there's a lot of kids out there that are starting new bands that are really well-meaning, uh, uh, there's political activism involved. I think that's still really alive, right? Um, mm. People are people really conscious of uh, what's going on in the world. Uh, so I'm glad to see that sort of fighting spirits there. Um, don't ask me to name like a half a dozen of my, my new favorite bands. I'm, I am terrible at that, I, mm. I, admittedly. Um, <clears throat> but man, we see lots of great bands as we go, like kid bands that are like just starting out and just think like, yeah, if you keep that, then uh, – Maybe you'll get a career out of it and do something do something good. You never know. You just got to, you know, to the new balance, I just go like, hey, if somebody ever asked me for advice, I just go like, the best thing is stay true to yourself. Whatever you want to play, just play that. Get better and better. And, you know, if it's good, people are going to discover it sooner or later. If it's not good, then whatever. You'll go on and do something else or you'll start another band, right? You know, it's like, you know, you use your skills somewhere else, right? So Yeah, that's, kids, that is the key to life stay true to yourself. Everything, yeah. like everyone I talk to, it's, it's one of the big keys. Like if you fake it, people are going to fucking see right through your shit. Oh yeah. It's, it's, it's also like when you see the older bands too, when they, you know, like lots of old, not now because of COVID, but lots of older bands try around making a comeback. Right. Which is great to see some of the old hands. And sometimes you, you see, wow, they're really great. Or sometimes you're just like, wow, they're really just mailing it in. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, this is like a quick payday, right? So whatever. I mean, people have all sorts of different reasons for doing it. And it's, a, it's not up to me to deny any of it. But if if you're not up there, like really going at it, the audience just has a way of picking up on that. Mm-hmm. You know, I think, yeah. Okay. There's a smell. There, there's a smell test. Uh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Let's play another song. Yeah. Okay. So another one off this album, something very change. Um, that I really like. It's called Woke Up Screaming. And that's about uh, my getting uh, beat up by the police in Vancouver at our local haunt, uh, the Smiling Buddha. And uh, it kind of deals with that. So that's one of my favorite old songs. We play it once in a while, you know, so uh, sometimes live.
that that's a cool cool song. Um, uh, World War Three's always been like uh, that. That's that's been like a great song that everybody knows. It's like uh, if you think about militarism in our world, um, I mean that never stops. I mean that's the kind of thing about DOA that people say, "Well, Joe." What are you singing about now? I mean, you're singing 40 years ago. I say, well, 40 years ago, we were singing about uh, about racism, sexism, greed, militarism. 40 years later, we're singing about racism, sexism, greed, right. militarism. They're right, you know, it's like, so it's kind of like, you know, I always, uh, I always thought that um, the world was a screwed up place when we started. I just didn't know how screwed up it was. It took me a while before I realized, you know, there's a lot more to it, a lot of layers. Mm-hmm. There of, of hatred, of bias, of uh, uh, idiot, idiocy, right? So. This one, Hardcore One, um, got lots of good songs. I, 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 one we always play, uh, DOA. That that's a go-to. That's a oh, that's a good story with that one. Okay, so some show really early days, and the, uh, that I was sitting on my front porch, like out in the suburbs. I, I had this little shack, and the only way you got hot, uh, got a heat in the wintertime, you had to build a fire, and to build a fire to heat up the water. So in the summertime, you had this fire going in the kitchen. It was like 100 degrees out to getting hot water in the house. It was, you're talking like a shack built in the 1930s, right? But it became kind of a bit of a party place. And after some show, some guy came by. I was just sitting there. And he says, ah, hey, man. I saw you. And this is nowhere near where the show was. I saw your show last night. You guys are great. I wrote these lyrics. And it was the lyrics to DOA. And he just handed me the piece of paper. And I went, whoa, that's pretty good. And uh, – I never saw the guy again, or if I did, he never said, "Hey, you stole my song." He, he, he kind of just gave me the song. He says, "Please use it." 
And uh, so that was just like an odd story. This, uh, that's like one, to me, that's one of the best DOA songs ever, right? You know, DOA by DOA. Would you tend to um, open up with uh, DOA or the enemy or close with one of those? Or um, I think we usually, lately we've been doing the, I can't remember what we've been open with lately, but usually by three or four, that's when we do the enemy and class war. Mm. And then five would probably be two plus two, a bit slower song on the first album. I like two um, plus two a lot. Yeah, yeah, it's a good song. And then number six would be World War Three. Then we'd uh, probably at that point, you know, go for liar for hire, off Warren 45, maybe a couple new ones. And uh, at the end, that's uh, like, uh, it would always end with the prisoner pretty well every, every time, except when we're at a festival uh-huh. and we can't, you can't, at festival, you can't do an encore. You're opening up for some giant band or whatever. Right. And so then it would end with the, the prisoner and then fight, fucked up Donald, fucked up Ronnie, fucked up baby, fucked up Thatcher fucked up bushway it's had the main name it's very really useful song right you know yeah so you but originally it was like you're fucked up baby and then became you're fucked up ronnie yeah and then we changed it when we're in the uk we used to do fucked up thatcher (laughs) that was last time i was in the uk at rebellion i saw my favorite shirt of all time was this older punk he's probably about 60 and his t-shirt on and said i still hate margaret thatcher unbelievable my fiance made me, well, she escorted me through the crown. And so I got to see Margaret Thatcher and wow, like even yeah. my fiance, who's really like the sweetest woman ever. And she's just like, I don't like her. <laughs> <laughs> We've been watching the crown uh, at home. It's a, uh... The Royals are a pretty amazing bunch. Insane. And I don't mean that much in a complimentary way. Right. You know, like, uh, you know, Wow. Yeah, yeah, it was yeah. it was very eye-opening to say the least. Um, so the end will, will be the prisoner. Yeah, and then uh, the encore would probably be like uh, Disco Sucks for sure. That's in there. Okay. Uh, Police Brutality, which are from uh, Northern Avenger. Um, me, you might hear a version of uh, Folsom Prison Blues, like oh. a very fast version of Folsom Prison. I'm a massive Johnny Cash uh band right and uh-huh. um and probably then you'd hear probably fucked up donald which has been lately but not we'll probably go back to we'll probably ask the audience next time we get out on tour we're gonna play uh hardcore 81 um from front to back oh, and sick. when we get to fucked up ronnie we're gonna ask the audience which what version they want to hear 
Which we'll, we'll take a, a, like an impromptu poll. Fucked up but, Trump. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> Which of you yells louder, right? You know. Yeah. So. Um, okay. Yeah. So hopefully uh, later this year, that's what we're doing. We do that album verbatim, right? So. Okay. Well, last one. Me and my friends have this ongoing conversation, and it, there's never the right answer. I don't believe, but I, I kind of anticipate. I know what your answer is going to be, but basically, the greatest American punk band of all time. Uh, you know what? I think for the influence and for the innovativeness, I mean, I have lots of favorite ones. I mean, I love the DKs, love Bad Brains, love the Circle Jerks, the Avengers, uh, uh, Adolescence, um, you know, Minor Threat. I mean, a, a, and lots of bands that are like way less known than that, right? Mm -hmm. You know, I'd probably, like I said, I think we talked previously and throughout my career, I think I've seen about 14,000 bands, something like that, right? So, but my my favorite band, because it, uh, especially in the days, was Black Flag. Black Flag. Uh, because, yeah, because the way Greg played guitar, the way Robo played drum, and the way Chuck played bass, because it was just like, we watched it, like, because D-Way was like a sped up rock band, right? In a sense, like, like a really super fast backbeat. And that's kind of our sound. Right, so that works for us, but those three guys, um, with and with their various singers, and we play with all incarnations from Dez and Henry and Dez to Keith to Ron to Henry, Henry, right? And uh, uh but those three guys, uh, just had a unique way of tackling the rhythm. And uh, Greg, of course, is very innovative on guitar as uh. well, right? So, okay, to me, yeah, you know, they really early stuff like uh, the first four years, right? That as uh masterpiece right so, so good yeah that one and live they were great too yeah and, you know and but i say there's lots of there's a lot of close seconds too right so is, is which era of black flag which singer is your favorite um well i i they're all good they're all good don't get me wrong uh, uh keith was great um but you know the funniest was like des uh De, and he said right probably the least known and I'm, I'm i'm good friends with ron ron lives in my hometown here and uh oh. i presume he voted for i presume he voted for me i hope he did <laughs> he he say came out did a bunch of vocals on a couple of doa a couple of albums ago right so nice. ron's a great guy he lives up lived up here for years but des was funny because he'd go like those guys would they we go to their warehouse in uh i guess it was in santa monica where sst was and they would practice before the day of a show for six hours, then come out and play. It was like insane, right? And then, <laughs> and then a desert, a desert out there screaming. The monitor guy would go like, "Oh, have you got enough vocals in your monitor?" And desert go like, "Turn the monitors off. I don't want to hear anything." And he would just scream, right? So, um, so we had a hilarious time uh, with them. Uh, out in Toronto a couple of years ago because they toured us flag. So uh, everybody was there except for Ron and Greg, right? You know, the, and um, Stephen Egerton was uh, playing guitar and he mm -hmm. was great, but, and Bill Stevenson was drumming. And uh, yeah, Bill's an incredible drummer too, of course, right? So, uh, but it was a great hanging out and got a chance to, there's actually time after the show to sit down and talk with all those guys who a bunch of them I hadn't seen for years. And then, uh, upstairs in the same club where we played there was a smaller room and then agnostic front were playing up there so it was like a like a really over the top uh evening it was like a ton of fun right so yeah mm. 
Uh-huh. You know, but okay. it, it, they, every every one of their lineups was great, right? So yeah. and just like yeah. I only saw. I, 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 I just dug it right in. Yeah, and which was great too. Like uh, Henry's a, a, a heck of a heck of a guy, right? It's just like you know, um, and you know what? I gotta say, a lot nicer than maybe his public persona indicates. He's a mm. nice guy. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> he was, yeah. Some he people might be afraid of like, I'm Henry Williams, right? <laughs> <laughs> yep. I, I don't know. I always thought he was a nice guy, right? Yeah. <laughs> is uh, is Devo in the conversation for you? Well, yeah, that's, I guess we kind of skipped over that because when the whole thing started, um, it, it was punk rock and new wave. That's a really good point, right? So, because the first bands we heard were really like, uh, like Richard Hell and the Voidoids, for example, like the early New York scene, Blondie. They're, they're all doing gigs together at CBGBs and mm-hmm. whatever other place they could find out there, right? And, uh, but her Devo, and that record was great. Uh, and they came, played in Vancouver. We had this really cool, like I said, the same ballroom where the Ramones played. It's called the Commodore. Um, so every every one of the local bands got to open up. So uh, the Dish Rags, uh, young the young woman, they were about sixteen at the time. They got to open up for the Clash there. Uh, DOA opened up for Ramones at a subsequent show when it was full. Uh, and our friends, the Point Six, got to open up for Devo, which was like great. Yeah, Devo was like wonderful. Like the first couple records, right? Oh yeah. Um, I mean, it's hard to say. It's I don't know if the record other records are as great, but you know whatever. It's like they're still a really innovative band. I mean, there's ton of ton of innovative bands, right? And at the time when we first did shows, you would have like a punk band, an artist, maybe a reggae band, and then a new wave band, and maybe a, a noise band, and that'd be the show. And that's the only way you could get even get fifty people. Because when the scene was really young, and then you got a hundred people, mm. you know, and then you know, then by eighty two, eighty three, it was much more broken up into segments, and by eighty five, it wasn't it wasn't as fun as it had been maybe during the first five years, right? But yeah, that's where I'm glad you brought that up because that was a really cool part of punk rock. It was like the thing is about not being loud, not being fast, not looking like a punk. The thing about punk rock, which makes it great, is being open-minded and open to like uh, being like the experimentation of the music right. and uh, the people with people within it and okay. the interaction with the fans too. Yeah, to me, that's a key part of what drew me into it. It's mm. self-expression. Yeah. It's the, one of the best at self-expression. Much like skateboarding. Sorry, it took me a while to figure that out. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I mean, you try something, you've got to find your own way to do it. Right. So yeah. it's like, and you, there's a common community out there, which I'm sure you found like skateboarding. Right. So absolutely. Sure. Right. So, you know, so it's been, it's been a great uh, thing. And I, you know, I, I mean, I, I love playing punk rock and I'll just keep playing as long as I can. Right. So, yeah. That's good, man. Hey, it's been, I've really enjoyed talking with you and hearing all these stories. It's just, it feeds into everything I love. And I think, uh, I was really stoked that we got to do this, especially after doing the first interview for the mag. It's a little quicker. This one is a little more elaborate and just feels really good for me. Um, Me and my fiance are huge documentary buffs. So we're definitely going to be, you know, anxiously waiting that. And uh, let's just, 
put a song on and ride out of here, what song should we end with? Should we end with the prisoner? Like keep it like that or put something yeah, else? Yeah, sure. Yeah. That, that's a good, great way to go out. Yeah. Okay. Well, thanks Excellent. so much no, thanks. for uh, taking the time and good luck with everything. Yeah, no, I really appreciate it. Thanks for the time. And uh, yeah, keep on. Cheers. Okay. All right. Take care.